Mark, I believe you've been uh, digging into the business archives of the United Kingdom. Anita Roddick. Oh, yes. Founder of The Body Shop, voting with your money to buy products that are produced ethically. She started life as a teacher. Well, actually started life as a child, but became a teacher. Natural things to uh, for you know health and beauty. And she her first shop was this little shop in Brighton in the UK. And she said she painted it green because um, uh, it, it helped hide the mold. And she called it the body shop. But every product had a story and you know an anecdote about you know the, where the bees came from that produced the honey that went into the thing. And so uh, and that was one of her big selling points. A customer came in and asked Anita to refill a shampoo bottle. And the funeral parlors weren't that happy about her shop called the body shop in between their funeral parlors. You can probably tell how, how much I admire her. Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Callahan. And hey, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. Mark, I believe you've been uh, digging into the business archives of the United Kingdom. What have you got for oh, us? Digging, yeah, some one of one of their their finest daughters. Um, and uh, like I've said this before, man, I am totally at risk of disappearing down the rabbit hole with this one. <laughs> uh, Anita Roddick. Oh yes, founder of the Body Shop, mm -hmm. and essentially one of the original advocates of ethical consumerism, which is voting with your money to buy products that are produced ethically. Yeah. Um, and we could do a podcast series on Anita Roddick. She is, and was, sorry, she died in 2007. She is an incredible storyteller. Everything, like she's just anecdote after anecdote. And it kind of goes to that thing that we've said um, several times or numerous times is that some of the most successful people in history are just, they're, they're continuous users of the thing called story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They have an example to, uh, to, to kind of back up every point they want to make. And uh, Anita certainly is, uh, yeah, certainly is one of those. And as I say, disappearing down the rabbit hole. Now, uh, Anita Roddick was, uh, she started life as a teacher. Well, actually started life as a child, but became a teacher. <laughs> um, and worked for the United Nations Department of Labor, something like that. But mm -hmm. that caused that that role, she traveled all over the world, right? She was, a, and she was a bit of a hippie, right? She was a bit of a, an alternative lifestylist. But when she was traveling, she spent a lot of time with the local folks, you know, the indigenous people, and and she's very interested in learning, you know, about the ways they used, you know, products, not 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 yeah. products, but the way these natural things to uh, for you know health and beauty, and she said it was just constantly amazing how many things that she learned uh, about ways to you know make the skin look smoother and blah, blah. They had nothing to do with, uh, you know, factory produced, you know, chemists, you know, chemistry, um, just using natural products. Yeah. 
And in the early 70s, so again, this is early 70s, um, her husband uh, went off to South America to fulfill a lifetime dream, which is to ride a horse across South America. Two years this was going to take. Two years. Um, and that's a long, that's a yeah. long ride. But, uh, and just to give you an idea of the sort of person Anita was, she said I, I, she liked it, right? She liked having a partner who had purpose. And even though they're going to be apart for a long time. Anyway, so whilst he was away, she thought, oh, I need to kind of, you know, make some money. You know, I need to make a living. Um, I learned a lot about this healthcare stuff. And, you know, she kind of started making beauty products, all very carefully, you know, using natural ingredients and things. And she, her first shop was this little shop in Brighton in the UK. And she said she painted it green because um, uh, it, it helped hide the mold. And she called it the body shop. And uh, every product, and she apparently she only had like 15 products to start with, but every product had a story and, you know, an anecdote about, you know, the, where the bees came from that produced the honey that went into the thing. And so, yeah. uh, and that was one of her big selling points. All right. So a bit of a thumbnail of, of Anita. Mm. This was just, this was just a little side hustle until her husband got back and they could get on with life. So they were talking about going to Australia and starting a pineapple farm, whatever. Yeah, uh, anyway, her <laughs> husband gets back and the body shop is now, she's got, she had two shops and, and they went, wow, this has got, this has got legs. Anyway, when she's starting out, she's got this message around ethical consumerism, you know, human rights, animal rights, uh, environmental uh, uh, protection, that sort of thing. Um, but she was really railing against all of the big companies who had you know, spent enormous amounts of money promoting their products. So, so it was really marketing-led. And she was going, well, it doesn't have to be this way. But um, how does she get her message out there? And there was a whole bunch of things, but... She was in her shop one day and a, a, a customer came in and asked Anita to refill a shampoo bottle that she bought. Right. So Anita's going, oh, well, tell me about that. Um, and the, the, the customer's going, well, I want to reduce my environmental force. I, don't, I, I, want, I want to minimize waste. I don't want to be recycling this. I, I want to reuse it. Right? And Anita goes, Oh, that is a great idea, and incorporate that as a key part of the body shop, uh, refillable containers. Yeah, and it was right. one of the things that really made a difference in terms of her, you know, kind of the brand of the body shop. Yeah, and and people started you know, taking even more attention, and uh, and it grew and it grew, and it was. She talks about it as uh, the it was a series of brilliant accidents that caused the body shop to be successful. And that was one of them. That was one of them. Wow. It is It is interesting, isn't it, just how those small things end up snowballing into, you know, a totally differentiator for her, for example. And um, and I reckon she, she might have been one of the first, you know, businesses that were, or at least retail businesses that were doing that. Mm. Because, you know, I, I, I don't really remember her shops in Australia until about the, the 1980s i'd say and and she was on a big roll by that stage right um yeah and and that was that was part of it that was a big part of the the whole allure i think for people go in and get things refilled yeah well yeah. That's, that's a nice little story the um what in telling that story mark what were the bits 
I can tell you, you've done lots more research on this than just that story. But in telling that story, what were the bits that you really like about it? What what sort of you enjoy telling? Well, I, I look the simplicity of it. You know, it's such a, a, a tiny little thing, um, and and really, it's compared to some of the other stories, it's a bit naff. You know, it's a bit mm, nothing because she's got some some tremendous stories. But um, I just liked it because it's it's indicative of the way she thought yeah. and the the kind of the things the way she thought that led to the success of the body shop. Because I can imagine there'd be uh, quite a few shops that. You know, if someone, a customer came in and said, look, I really want a refill of this, and they, oh, no, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't do that. That's that's not us. So, I mean, I suppose it does help to have the founder in the shop, you know, um, having those that perspective, those eyes and ears to, um, to sense and notice something like that. Um, but, God, it makes all the difference when you do. No, that's a lovely one. It's an told pretty quickly i mean the thing about that is you sort of have to tell a little bit of a backstory don't you to even introduce that anecdote because yes we're getting further and further away from the life of anita roddick right because when did she pass away yeah 2007 2007 right so uh you know there's probably i don't know i don't even know if there's still body shops are there body shops yeah no. yeah yep yeah, there's and, still there's still body shops. There's many, many competitive brands, though. She kind of started the uh, the whole genre of this right. type of, of uh, beauty healthcare products. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, probably, yeah, uh, you know, uh, not the favourite person in the uh, you know the L'Oreal you know, type of uh, type of world. Um, <laughs> That's right, exactly. So, tell me then, um, is there anything there that uh, you would do differently in telling that story. Oh yeah, I could just take another ten minutes and talk about <laughs> many of the other little things that uh, that she did, like the fact that the original body shop, the only one when she started, which was just a little side hustle till her husband got back, um, it was between two funeral parlors, right. and apparently the funeral parlors weren't that happy about her shop called the body shop in between their funeral parlors. And they, they apparently got, you know, like they, they came the heavy on her and tried to get her to, to uh, either close down or change the name. And uh, she said, you know, they, they didn't have much money and they'd spent 700 pounds of the money that they didn't have uh, doing all the signage for the body shop. So there was no way they were, was there was no way they were changing the name. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, she was kind of feeling the precious pressure she made an anonymous phone call to the local newspaper saying you know local businesswoman being harassed by albia being uh, forced out of business by the uh the, the the mafia funeral owners funeral parlor owners it was yeah. something like that anyway but that got a whole bunch of uh, of uh, marketing for her and uh she realized that paying for marketing uh, you know even though that was the norm it wasn't it, it wasn't necessarily the only way to go about it That's that's great. Love it. Anyway, so I, I would think, you know, I think like there must be a, it must be a British uh, sort of response, isn't it? Because I'm thinking Richard Branson was very much of that ilk as well, wasn't he? The um, the stunt as PR, um, you know, and he was willing to practically do anything to uh, bring attention to his businesses. Uh, business points on this one, Mark. Is it, I mean, there's one that jumps out for me, which is, you know, listening to your customers. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Listen to your customers. Listen to your customers. Yeah. Some of the best ideas are going to come. Um, so uh, also just uh, believing in something. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. If you believe in something, you know, stick by it and, uh, uh, and turn it to your advantage. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, she was a pioneer. And uh, so she was, uh, be true to your values. And so I also look for opportunities because at that time, there was no relationship between uh, ethical beauty products and business success. Right, right. right. It was just able to to eke out something there, right? Mm. I I guess, you know, she she saw the the increased uh, social desire for for ethical uh, ethical trade, ethical products, ethical practices. Yeah. So uh, she saw it uh, and she took advantage of it. It's something that she knew. The other thing is, of course, is that your interests can become your your uh, your business. Yeah, right. Yeah, when she was traveling around, she was kind of interested in learning about this stuff and and figured out how to make products herself. And next thing you know, she's got 2,000 stores across the world. That's awesome. No, that's good. Well, um, you can probably tell how how much I admire her. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember um, I was very impressed about Anita Roke. I went out and bought, I remember it had a sort of a green cover, her autobiography, and it was like the, the go-to, you know, one of the really important business books of its time, right? Yeah. I was just told the story of the company, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for years, we ran a leadership program um, uh, for a company in Sydney. And the um, I, I used to facilitate that with uh, a friend, a colleague who uh, you know, be, became a very, very close friend, Tony High. And he talked about how uh, he had one day tasked people with going into Macquarie Shopping Centre, which, which was just near where this organisation was headquartered, yeah. and going and talking to businesses there and finding out about leadership in those businesses and somebody turned up you know went to the body shop and the the uh, you know the 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 shop assistant started explaining how anita roddick was totally focused on teaching people about ethics and you know demonstrating and and you know really looked after her people and and the, the shop assistant volunteered during her lunch hour to come over and talk to the the group, um, you know, at this company's leadership program about the way, and and she did, and apparently she was a knockout. Is like that how, right? Ah, and but and uh, Roddick talks about how they, when they were kind of selecting people to be franchisees, they didn't want people who were business people, yeah. and so you know, in the interview, she would ask them questions like, "How would you? How do you? How would you like to die?" You know, and really funky questions like that. You know, what sort of car do you have? And what sort of car do you want to have? And if they wanted to have a Mercedes, they were out. You know, and anyway, she wanted people who would be prepared to teach others, right. both customers and and fellow Again, staff. it comes back to that purpose point you were yeah. right at the beginning. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's quite a, quite a legacy when you're, you know, like when a shop assistant in a, store in suburban Sydney um, volunteers to go and talk to a leadership program to a bunch of senior executives 
and and knocked it out of the park. So that's great, isn't it? Um, in in some ways, that story that the shop assistant story, I think, is even more remarkable than the story of the person coming in and asking for a refill. And on reflection, that is the story that I should have told to demonstrate the body shop. Well, no, I think, but it isn't. But here's the thing: you know how you hear people say, "Oh, what's our story?" You know, this idea that a a company is encapsulated in a single story. It's just an absolute fallacy, right? I mean, there's hundreds, there's thousands of stories, um, you know, millions of stories when you're talking about a company like The Body Shop. Yeah. And, and, you, and it's, yeah, it's about finding a bunch of those to get a, a full picture of what's going on. And even then you don't have a full picture. Um, yeah, and I also like the fact that you know, once you start telling these stories, other stories pop up, right? It's a real natural process. Yeah, yeah and I, 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 I like what you say about you know, it's not, it's not one story. Mm. Um, a, a metaphor that I find useful is uh, stories are the pixels of your culture. In the same way that at the TV screen, the picture is the image is made up of, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pixels individual dots of light but when they're all assembled they make oh goodness you know they make incredible pictures yeah and the the stories uh when you when you're thinking about what's the culture of your organization you know what does it look the the stories are the pixels and so it's about finding enough of those pixels that you can get an idea of what what's the image on the screen you don't need the complete you don't need it in 4k resolution yeah but just enough there's a, um, a TED talk which uh, is super popular called The Danger of a Single Story. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie? I think that's her name. And, um, and yeah, she's making the same point. You can get this stuck on this single story as if that's the only story. Okay, mate, I think it's time for us to um, give this a rating. And well, I uh, told the story, so you get to go I get first. to rate. Okay, oh, okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a 6 out of 10 as rating. Um, I do love Anita Roddick and her work. I think I would give the... Um, you know, the salesperson's story an eight out of ten. So <laughs> original story. It's, I like it, but not, not not so much. What about you? What do you what, how do you like it? Oh, you yeah, see, I'm biased. I'm, I'm I'm still looking from the rabbit hole. Um look, I'm gonna go with you. It's a six out of ten. It's it's out of in its own right. I don't know, it just doesn't convey enough about the amazing achievements of Anita Roddick and it needed a lot of context setting. And so I'm going to continue my rabbit hole exploration and uh, and, and find more. Rabbits. Yeah, I'm going to come back with yet another Anita Roddick story some stage okay. in the near future. See if you can up it. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Well, thanks everyone for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. Um, and tune in next week for another episode of How to Put Your Stories to Work.
Bye for now. Anecdotally speaking, was engineered by Dave Stokes from author to audio.